All right, the rest of you can turn to Acts chapter 5. We'll be reading from the ESV, which is the extra spiritual version. (laughs) Not really. But it is a good translation. Uh, We've been... um, in, in Acts for a while now, we're, we're going to be uh, shifting a little bit from what we looked at last time where we got kind of an inside look at what was going on in the church, and now we're going to get kind of the church back out in public and on mission again this morning. I'm going to read verses 12 through 18. Now many signs and wonders were regularly done among the people by the hands of the apostles, and they were all together in Solomon's portico. None of the rest dared join them But the people held them in high esteem, and more than ever, believers were added to the Lord, multitudes of both men and women, so that even, or so that they even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats, that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. The people also gathered from the towns around Jerusalem, bringing the sick and those afflicted with unclean spirits, and they were all healed. But the high priest rose up. And all who were with him, that is, the party of the Sadducees, and filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. So that's our passage this morning. Um, It starts out in verse 12 by telling us that many signs and wonders were being done regularly at the hands or by the hands of the apostles. And this was actually a specific answer to prayer which is kind of neat to to think about. This was recorded in Acts 4 when after Peter and John were arrested, the church came back together and they prayed. And, and it's fantastic that after, you know, something like this happens, you know, I think about how I would pray and, and I like the way they prayed better rather than cowering to the Jewish religious leaders, as most people did after being threatened and warned. Instead, they prayed like this. And now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders are performed through the name of your holy servant, Jesus. That was their prayer. And in Acts chapter 5, God answers their prayer spectacularly. They wanted God to stretch out his hand and to perform these signs and wonders, and that's what he does. And notice that the, the prayer for signs and wonders is tied to their request to speak God's word with boldness. It's important that we see the, those two connected there because the signs and the wonders created the opportunity to preach the gospel. God used those things to draw the crowd to enable them to get away with, with speaking without the authorities interfering. If, if you think about the way that it used to work with Jesus, you know, he would perform all these miracles. The people would come around, they'd get all excited to see what was going on, and he would be preaching, and the, the authorities wanted to stop it, but because they were doing these signs and wonders and the people were all excited about it, they, you know, they, they couldn't put a stop to it. They'd have to sit there and put up with it because the people loved what was going on, and they were afraid of the people, and that's what we see the same thing happening here. If the signs and the wonders weren't going on and you just had some kind of, you know, lone nut in the, in the temple preaching, they would just grab the guy and throw him in jail. No big deal. But in this instance, because of the signs and wonders, they got away with being able to talk a little longer, which is good. So it wasn't just signs and wonders for the sake of signs and wonders. It was so people would hear the message. And many people in church today, they look for the signs and the wonders as the main event. That's why they come. That's what they want to see. And there's nothing wrong with signs and wonders, but they aren't the main event. They're really just the opening act. Salvation is the main event. People coming to Jesus is always the main event. And that, that goes back to the famous quote that we've, we've mentioned here before. What you win them with is what you win them to. If you win them with signs and wonders, guess what? You got to keep up the signs and wonders. As soon as the signs and wonders stop, so, do their, so does their attendance. They stop coming too. 
But if you win people with the gospel, you win them to Jesus. And that never gets old. So, you know, you'll, you'll hear people talk about why they go to churches and, you know, oh, their music is so great. You, you know, nothing personal, but you probably won't hear that today. We didn't even have the guitar working, you know. That's not why people are coming. The programs are phenomenal. We have good programs, but they're not why people come. You know, they give away food and stuff like that. Yeah, we do, we do some of that kind of stuff. There, there's lots of little things like that, but they aren't the main event. Preaching Christ crucified is what we're all about here. That's what you're going to hear every week here. So signs and wonders can attract a crowd, but they can't convert a crowd. Only the gospel can do that. God will certainly use signs and wonders. He uses the, he used them then. He will still use them today. And, and we're good with that. We've enjoyed our share of miraculous things since we started this church. And, and I love seeing miraculous things happen. But they're never meant just to entertain the church. They're meant to draw sinners to Christ for salvation and to increase our faith in the process. But these specific signs that we're reading about in chapter 5 um, were said to be done at the hands of the apostles the capital A apostles. And these weren't your garden variety miracles, right? If you look at what was going on here, these guys were like the Avengers walking around town. They were like superheroes walking around Jerusalem. It's kind of crazy. They they had special abilities. You know, I think about how people talk about modern day faith healers now. And they say, if they they have this ability to heal, why don't they go to the children's wing of the hospital and just start walking down the hallway, you know, and healing all the kids. And it's like, that's a great question to ask. I'm pretty sure that the apostles, based on what we see in this, could have done that. They could have gone to like Jerusalem General Hospital and and emptied every wing in the place. Because what we read about here says in verse 15, the people even carried out the sick into the streets and laid them on cots and mats that as Peter came by, at least his shadow might fall on some of them. And they also gathered people from all the towns around Jerusalem, bringing them uh, the sick and the people that were afflicted with unclean spirits. And it says that all were healed all of them. It's nuts. The apostles power was so great that people were actually like hoping that just a shadow might do something. That's crazy, isn't it? I mean, they were planning like the apostles is like, I wonder which way they're going to walk to go to the temple today. You know, looking at the sun and the, the path and thinking, okay, if we, you know, it's like, if we set them over here about this time when Peter, you know, that's what they're, that's what they're doing. Hoping that just a shadow might fall on somebody and heal somebody. That's crazy stuff. It sounds a lot like what happened when Jesus was in town, right? Except now there's 12 of them doing it. And we know that it's Christ in them because it's exactly the same stuff he did. If you, if you go back and look at it, like Mark 6, in regards to Jesus, it says this, the people ran around the whole region and began to bring the sick and their beds to wherever they heard Jesus was. And whenever he came to villages or cities or countryside, they laid the sick in the marketplace and implored him that they might even touch the fringe of his garment. And as many as touched it were made well. Now, we don't know if Peter's shadow actually healed anybody or not. It doesn't say that, but they thought it could. And and we know that, you know, it looks very much like what Jesus did. So it wouldn't have been hard for the people to make the connection between what the apostles are doing. And it wasn't that long ago. It's like, you know who this reminds me of? It's like, there was a guy like a couple months ago. You remember that? You know, this is like a big thing in Jerusalem. Jesus was doing it. Now they're doing it. Very easy to make the connection, right? And I believe that this is why the apostles were given these amazing gifts. It tied the early church to the resurrected Jesus and made it clear that God had handed the mantle to the apostles now as the leader of his church or as the leaders of his church. This is apostolic authority being established here. 
So they were doing these things, they were crediting Jesus, and it made, it made it clear that they were all part of the same thing. And not only do you see the apostles doing the same things as Jesus, but you, say, you see them ministering to the same people that Jesus ministered to. And you think about who Jesus spent time with. It was the marginalized and the needy and the broken, which drove the religious leaders crazy. And you can think back to Jesus again in Mark chapter 2. It says, And the scribes and the Pharisees, when they saw Jesus was eating with sinners and tax collectors, he said to his disciples, Why does he eat? with sinners and tax collectors. I always like when they're, you know, Jesus in the room, like he's over off in the distance and they would say these kinds of things. And Jesus had really good ears. <laughs> you ever notice that? It's like, man, he heard that. It's funny. You know what? He still has really good ears, by the way, just for what it's worth. Not to, you know, just remember that. But Jesus hears them and he says, those who are well have no need of a physician, but those who are sick. I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Jesus has always had a clear love and compassion for those who are like sheep without a shepherd. The physically ill, the mentally ill, and the spiritually ill. The outcasts and the misfits of society. People like us. And if we're being honest, that's not the most appealing group to target when you start a church. I mean, if, you're, if you were to map this out and come up with a business plan, this is not like your target audience, right? That's why you see so many people, when they go to plan or start a church, they pick a much nicer place or nicer areas. Like, we're going to go to Northwest Crossing, and we're going to set up shop. Because, and, and that's it really, we know people that have done this. I mean, that's like, that's, that's the spot. When you come into town, it's like, that's where we want to go. We purposefully went completely the other direction. It's like, we want to go where there's no gospel presence, where there's a lot of hurting people, a lot of needy people. And that's why we, we, you know, landed where we did. And and we'll continue to look for those places as we, you know, if we ever do plant, hopefully Lord allow us to plant a church one of these days. Uh, We want to do the same type of thing. When you think about starting a church with, with, with this kind of a, you know, the target audience, you know, it's going to be a messy church. You know, it's going to be a needy church, but that's perfect. You know, if you, if you want to, to see the Holy Spirit show up in power, that's like a great target audience right there because he's going to show up and show everybody who's boss and who's really in charge and who's really doing the work. And that's what we want to see. This church has always been known as a place that is open to everyone. No matter how messy your life is, you're welcome here. And we hope that it will always be that way. Anyone can walk in here and find hope. And, and for the most part, the greatest hope that they can find is, is Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. And as Christians who do know Jesus, we also have hope. And when I think about what the church is going through here in Solomon's porch and all the, the hope that they were bringing, you know, some of that had to do with healing. Uh, even some of the stuff we talked about this morning, um, Jesus will fix everything. Maybe not now, but at the resurrection for sure. And I look forward to a time when there won't be any more long needles <laughs> of any kind. That's a good day right there, right? So the early, early church was gathering. Tons of people were being miraculously healed, and multitudes of men and women were getting saved. Things are going pretty good, right? What could possibly go wrong? Well, then you get to verse 17. But, and this is one of those bad buts in the Bible, but the high priest rose up and all who were with him, that is the party of the Sadducees. And filled with jealousy, they arrested the apostles and put them in the public prison. And this just means they were publicly arrested, I believe. Um, it's pretty kind of ironic to think about God moving so clearly, so clearly. I mean, he, all these people getting healed. Who can do that? Only God. And it's obvious. And yet the religious leaders, 
The ones that are supposed to know God, the ones that are supposed to follow God are the ones that come up and say, we've had enough of this and put a stop to it and arrest these guys. It's crazy to think about. And I, I look around our world today and I see all the stuff that's going on and, 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 and it's just like people have lost their minds. I, I don't even, it's almost stuff you couldn't make it up. It's so, there's a, I love this, I won't even, uh, okay. There's a satire site I love called the Babylon Bee. Look at it, don't look at it, whatever. It's got, there's, they're a little twisted sometimes. There's times when one of their articles will come across my feed or an article, not one of theirs, another one will come across and I'll think, oh, this is a Babylon Bee article because it's so weird and off. And then I realize, oh no, this is the news. This is really happening. This isn't satire. This is like a real news story. And I'm scratching my head thinking, how can that even possibly be that we're literally living in a time where good is called evil and evil is called good. And it freaks me out a little bit if I'm being honest, but they were too right here in the temple. You see the same kind of thing where something like this, people being healed, miraculously healed. And, and the religious leaders are coming and saying, that's bad. Stop doing that and arresting the people that are doing it. So within Luke's account here in, in chapter five, we see three distinct groups. And I'm going to label them the orthodox, the onlookers, and the opposition. And that's because they all start with O. And that's pretty cool, right? You don't usually get that kind of quality from us up here. Orthodox is a weird word. It just means true believers, Christians. That's what it is. But the orthodox, the onlookers, and the opposition. Those three groups existed then in the temple that day, and they still exist right here, right now, in our community, in our state, in our government, in our country, in our world. They're still there. The Orthodox are those who have trusted in the person and the work of Christ for salvation. True believers, right? They were all gathered together there in Solomon's porch, which was this, this big expansive area in the, in the outer court of the temple where people would gather kind of these roofed colonnades. And it was kind of a big hangout place for, for people that were at the temple that day. And that's where they would gather. They would gather publicly with the purpose of engaging the, the people that were there. That's important. These people in the church were characterized by their love for each other, as well as their love for the lost and for the hurting in their community. They had compassion on the marginalized in society. So when you see all these disabled people and stuff like that, that are, you know, nobody quite knows they, they were loving these people, healing them, engaging them. They had one heart and one mind. We're told that in other places. So they had this unity that was evident to the people around them. They were characterized by their mission. They were all on the same mission together, which was obvious to everybody as well. And they were characterized by their willingness to follow Jesus, no matter the cost. I really like that because they gathered here after the Jewish religious leaders had already threatened them. They'd already come to him and said, you guys need to stop talking about Jesus. You need to stop talking about the resurrection. If you don't stop, guess what? We're going to come after you. We're going to, you know, they threatened them. And, and the next day it's like they wake up and think, hey, what are you doing today? I'm going to the temple to tell people about Jesus. <laughs> it's like, that's pretty cool. That's what they were doing, knowing that persecution was probably inevitable and they did it anyway. They were willing to follow Jesus no matter the cost. They were in the temple among the people, but they were separate and distinct from the people. So they didn't isolate from the world. They integrated with the world. They weren't being obnoxious or combative, but they were preaching the gospel while at the same time meeting practical needs of the people. And the people saw it and it brought them hope. Somehow it says that they were highly esteemed. They saw these things going on and it brought the people hope. 
that's a beautiful picture of what the church should look like in a community. What we see here happening is what we hope to, to see in our community when people look at us. We don't have a Solomon's porch to hang out on, so we have to get a little bit more creative and find ways to, to do this. And we've tried that as a church over the years. Some of the stuff we've done is for this very reason. We used to have a coffee house, right, over there in the other little building. And that was the purpose of it. It was, it was a Solomon's porch of sorts for us to gather and meet and have other people from the community come in and spend time with us. Uh, the storehouse that we had for a while in the same building that later became a place for us to give away food to people. Same idea. A brown bag is that. The, the Sun River food giveaway. Trunk or treat. All of these different things that we do are ways to try to, to engage, spend time with the community. And, and we need to find more ways to do that continually as a church and even as individuals in the church, finding ways to, to find that porch to hang out on with other, other people that aren't like us. And it's important that we take the opportunity to represent ourselves. What, you know, I like this very much that the church was there representing themselves in view of the public. They weren't letting somebody else represent them. If you've noticed when somebody tries to represent Christians, that's not a Christian, it usually isn't very good. It's bad. And some of it's deserved. I won't, I won't lie. I know that some of it, you know, because the, the label Christian is pretty broad and pretty wide. And so some of the stuff that goes on under that banner, it, it should be, you know, kind of ridiculed. But when you get an opportunity to represent yourself before the public and not let the media do it or not let non-Christians do it, that's a good thing for us. And, and I think that that's what was happening here. Normally, Christians are represented as hateful and intolerant, and bigoted, and judgmental, and things like that. But anybody watching the early church at Solomon's porch, they wouldn't have come to that conclusion. They would have saw a group of people who loved God, and who loved people. You know, yeah, they were preaching the gospel. Yeah, they were probably talking about some hard things, because the gospel is is that. But, but it was an example for us to look at and follow. Which brings us to those who were watching, the onlookers. This is the group of people who kind of stayed on the sidelines, took in all that was going on, you know, I like to do that when I go places. I'm, I'm an onlooker in general, not not in this sense, but I mean, I like to, when I go to a big city or something like that, I kind of like to just back up against a wall and just watch. It's kind of interesting. And that's kind of, there was a lot of people in the temple that day that they didn't want to get too close. They didn't want to dive in fully, but they wanted to, to watch and see what was going on. So they were intrigued, but unaffiliated. They kept a safe distance. And no doubt, most of these people would have would have said that they believed in God. I mean, they were in the temple after all, right? And I find that with the people that I talk to, when I meet people, oh yeah, I believe in God. That's a pretty common thing to hear people say. But they knew that there was a difference between them and the people on the porch, so to speak. They knew that that was a whole different level of something going on than what they were doing. And they were willing to get close, like close enough for Peter's shadow maybe to fall on him to get some blessing, but they weren't willing to actually join them. I I find that this is kind of describes a lot of people. They like to get near. They like the benefits that might come their way from drawing a little bit close, but they don't want the commitment that's involved with it. So this means they were willing to risk a little affliction, you know, a little affiliation, but not dive in too deep. And, and, And the question comes up, what was keeping them from going all in? After all, the text tells us they, they held the church in high esteem. They saw the miracles. Those things were there. Why wouldn't, they, why wouldn't they go all in? Which also begs the question, how can you see those kinds of miracles happening and not want to join Team Jesus? I mean, what, what would stop you at that point? The problem seems to be that they had 
more fear than faith. They cared more about what men thought of them than what God thought about them. And they knew that joining up together with the church would have been costly. People today are still unwilling to come to Christ because they know that their association with him will cost them something. And, and it's, you know, if you're paying attention, it's more costly now than it was a year ago to call yourself a Christian, right? To identify with this group. I, you know, I think about John here in the front row who spent 29 years in China. He knows what it means for a Chinese person to identify as a Christian and what that could cost them. It's a whole nether level of cost than what we face. We think of being ridiculed, being shunned, you know, having Facebook, Google, or Twitter say that your account has been suspended because you're talking about things that they don't think are right to talk about. That's kind of some, what we're dealing with now. But there are people right now in countries all around us who are, who are fearful for their life and their families' lives because of the persecution they face. And quite frankly, the people here in the temple that day were dealing with something more along those lines. They would have been shunned from society, potentially. So the cost is high. The question then is, how desperate do you have to be to take the risk, right? What's the tipping point where the benefits outweigh the threat? In his commentary, Tony Merida talks about those who approach Jesus with a middle-class spirit. (laughs) It's kind of funny. The idea is they aren't desperate. They can take care of themselves for the most part, but they are interested in how Jesus might be able to enhance their lives a bit. Middle-class spirit. And sadly, I, I believe that describes a very large percentage of churchgoers. Jesus said, blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Are you poor in spirit or just middle class in spirit? (laughs) I can stand before you this morning and honestly say, my name is Brent Maxwell and I am bankrupt apart from Christ, (laughs) completely destitute apart from him. When I look at the, the risk reward scenario, it's like it doesn't even compute. It's like I need Christ. I come out of complete desperation. I have no hope apart from him. So it doesn't matter what the risk is. I'm going in. I'm going all in. I understand who I am and I understand what I need in that regard. I don't have any other options. And that's what the onlookers need to understand. When it comes to their eternal destiny, there's nothing that should keep an onlooker from from getting on the porch and joining Team Jesus at this point. Nothing. Some of you are still onlookers this morning. You haven't fully surrendered to Jesus And I would encourage you to to get off the fence and get on the porch. It's time to move that direction. You know, there's a verse in Matthew 10, 28 that probably doesn't get read in churches very often because it's a tough one. It's the words of Jesus. And he said, do not fear those who can kill the body but cannot kill the soul. Rather fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. If that doesn't get your attention this morning, I don't know what will. That's Jesus. That's the people that... Or that's the man that people want to describe as just this, this lamb, you know, this peace-loving hippie. No, man, what, that's, that's heavy, what he just said there. And people need to understand that there's nothing that should stop you from coming and going all in with Jesus because everything is on the line here. Well, there's a third group, unfortunately, that we need to talk about, and that is the opposition. I am not a big fan of the opposition, I'm more of a smooth sailing kind of guy that describes me pretty well, which doesn't really work very well with being a pastor, I know. And and quite frankly, it doesn't work very well with being a Christian either. 
one of my favorite C.S. Lewis quotes is this. He says, if you want a religion to make you feel really comfortable, I certainly don't recommend Christianity. <laughs> That's honest. <laughs> so I would prefer that the opposition didn't exist, but it does. And they seem to be hell-bent on our demise. On this day, they came in the form of a high priest and his lackeys who were driven by jealousy. The truth is opposition will take on various forms within the church. Sometimes it'll be inside the church. Sometimes it'll come from outside the church, but it will come. And it helps me to remember when it does come, the people are not our enemy. They're not the ones that we're fighting against. That's not where the real fight is. Ephesians 6.12 tells us we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, that's people, but against rulers and authorities and cosmic powers, spiritual forces of evil. There's a spiritual realm that does exist, and our battle is a spiritual one. And our enemy doesn't want anyone to come to Jesus. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 4, talks about, they, they refer to Satan as the God of this world in this verse. And it says, the God of this world has blinded the minds of unbelievers to, unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. That's what, he, that's what he's like. That's what he does. He doesn't want anybody to come. And it does appear sometimes that people are the enemy, but that's not, the, that's not the reality. They're just pawns in the hand of the real enemy. Opposition is something that a Christian can count on. If you're not facing any opposition, it may be because you're not actually on the team, or it may be because you, you are on the team, but you really aren't in the game. And, and when I say opposition, just so I'm clear, I'm not talking about having a bad day Right? We all have bad days. Like, I got a flat tire. I'm, I'm facing opposition. I'm not talking about that kind of stuff. I'm not talking about the consequences of your bad decisions. We all face those. Everybody faces those. I'm talking about the enemy coming against you because of your devotion to Jesus, because of your proclamation of the cross, because of the fact that you were truly in the game and on mission for Christ. That's the kind of opposition I'm talking about. And when the enemy opposes us, it's because we're doing something he doesn't like which is a strange compliment maybe in a way or an encouragement, I guess. It's like, well, I guess I'm doing something the enemy doesn't like. That can be a good thing, but it doesn't feel like that when it's happening. I'll tell you that. It feels bad when it happens. It's not something we enjoy. Imagine what the church was thinking as the apostles were one minute walking around like superheroes and the next minute being hauled off to jail. That would have been hard to see. That'll cause you to question everything. As Christians, there's going to be times like this that, that come and that hit us. Um, you know, the last few weeks have been that way for me, if I'm being honest. I've just um, felt opposed and oppressed and depressed. And it, and it stemmed from a, a conversation with somebody that w they were critical of me. They were critical of the church. Some of what they had to say was actually spot on. A lot of it wasn't. But it wasn't so much that conversation. It's what the enemy did with it afterwards to just eat my lunch day after day after day and lie to me. And get me to believe the lies. You're worthless. You shouldn't be here. What you're doing doesn't matter. All of those things. And I'm not trying to get emotional and cry because I do that. But it's just that, that, that heavy opposition that comes to tell you that what you're doing doesn't matter. And you should just stop. You should just go away and go back to fixing copiers for a living. You know, that's, that's the kind of stuff that the enemy would bombard you with and, and try to convince you of. 
And many of you can relate to this because you have circumstances in your life that just don't make sense sometimes. And you wonder, where is God in all of this? Lord, I'm trying to please you. I'm trying to walk after you. I'm trying to do the things you want me to do. I'm trying to live a life that honors you. And yet I'm, I'm facing this stuff. You have an enemy. He's real. The Bible says he's like a roaring lion that wants to devour you. You want to get a picture of what he's like? Go look at the book of Job. You have this enemy that comes and says, I want to see you like curse God to his face. That's his, that's his desire. And that can be overwhelming sometimes. But then you get a verse that shows up in your inbox from, uh, from a guy who's faithful to send out verses. He would hate it if I mentioned his name, so I won't. But at the right time this week, Ecclesiastes 11.5 showed up and it said this, just as you don't know the path of the wind and how bones are formed in the womb of the pregnant woman, so you do not know the activity of God who makes all things. And I thought, you know, that's right. I know nothing, <laughs> but I do know the promises of God and I do know the power of God and I do know the will of God for my life. And I can take stock in that and stop believing this garbage that the enemy's telling me and stop believing these lies. We can't fathom what God is up to. Sometimes things don't look right to us, but that doesn't mean that God's not active and doing things in our life and that he has lots of reasons for what comes along. I would ask you guys to please pray for this church regularly. Um, as we start to grow, as we start to see things, you know, go well, we get opposed and, and it can be discouraging. Pray for this church. Please pray that this place continues to be a beacon of hope in this community and pray for those that are, that are actively ministering and not just the pastors, but there's so many people that are constantly at work here and, and it can get discouraging if we let the enemy lie to us and, and, and try to defeat us. So, so take heart in the promises of God and remind yourself of the truth of the gospel on a daily basis. Even if opposition exists, God is greater. I mean, it's really not even a fair fight if you think about it. God, God is going to win. And when opposition comes, I started thinking about why this exists sometimes in the church and in my life. Opposition has a way of unifying the church. It has a way of purifying the church. It has a way of recalibrating us to focus on the main thing, right? Forget about all those other things. Focus on the main thing when opposition comes. It has a, a way of causing us to fully rely upon God. And it has a way of causing us to long for home. I don't know about you, but when opposition hits and I start to just get discouraged, I start thinking about my blessed hope, the home that, that waits for me, where opponents and opposition will no longer exist. And it gives me great comfort. We're about to see a lot of persecution recorded in the book of Acts, but the result was that it caused the church to strengthen and to spread out so that more and more people would hear the gospel. This isn't the enemy winning or getting the upper hand. God wins. I've checked the end of the story. Feel free to read ahead. You can look at the end of the book and read it. We win, right? We are victorious. God wins. It's fantastic to cons just consume your mind with that kind of thing. And I think going through the book of Acts right now, especially in light of what we're doing as a country right now, um, is probably very timely because if you haven't noticed a storm's a brewing, <laughs> I mean, it's, I didn't order the clouds in today, uh, but, but the clouds seem to be darkening, which means that it's going to get hard for some people to stay on the porch. It's going to be hard for some people to stay devoted to, to their Lord and savior Christ. And so we need to be prepared. Opposition could come. Persecution could come. It may be harder and harder to name yourself as a Christian and name the name of Christ. 
But as Peter so eloquently put it, where else would we go? Where else am I going to go? Lord, you, you alone have the words of life. I have no other hope apart from Christ. He is the solid rock that I stand on and all other ground really is sinking sand. So Christian, we've not been given a spirit of fear, but of power. And the story ends well for those who trust in Christ. Paul describes it this way. He talks about the gospel being like a treasure that's inside of us. And he he says that it's like treasure in jars of clay, which is like a a fragile pot or a cracked pot, if if I can call you guys cracked pots this morning. He says, but we have this treasure in jars of clay to show us the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. We are afflicted in every way, but not crushed, perplexed, but not driven to despair, persecuted, but not forsaken, struck down, but not destroyed. And then in Romans 8, he says, no, in all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I take great comfort in verses like that. And I would encourage you when oppression comes, when the enemy tries to eat your lunch, find verses like these and fill your head and your heart with them. They'll be like nourishment to your bones. The battle has already been won and we are already victorious. And and I love that the table represents that for us. When we come and, and take part in communion, it's a reminder that the battle is won. Christ is victorious. And because he is victorious, because he conquered sin and death, if you're a Christian in Christ, so have you. Our hope is secure. Our future home is secure, but it came at a great cost. Jesus' body was broken for you. His blood was shed for you. He willingly became your substitute on the cross so that you wouldn't have to suffer and die in this way. I'm so thankful for this church. I'm thankful that I have the privilege of being a pastor here. I'm thankful for all that God does in our midst. And I'm reminded even this week as I just looked, looked around this room and heard praise and prayers and, and all that's going on that God is moving here. He is doing something here. And I, I'm excited to think about what the future holds for us. And so, Father, we, we are grateful for the Son of God the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. We're thankful that we get to remember this during communion and and contemplate your body being broken for us, Jesus, and your blood being shed for us so that we could have life. Lord, we don't know what the future holds for this country and for this church, but we trust in you. We trust in your powerful name. We trust in the mission that you've given us to do. And we pray, Father, that we would be devoted to you no matter what the cost. Prepare us for what's to come as a church and as individuals, we ask in Christ's name. Amen.